Well, this is the conclusion of our seven mountains of cultural influence as we've gone through arts and entertainment, media, education, religion, politics, family, and business. I think I got them all. And um, we're, I'm going to give a quick synopsis and invite our guest speaker to come up, and he's going to kind of, he's got a great message, and it's going to tie in. I don't know how, but it will. But before uh, I even start in explaining some of the stuff that we've been through the last few weeks, I want to introduce to you somebody who's visiting, and uh, really a blessing to have him with us, um, a, a great brother in the Lord, but a, an incredible warrior for God um, across the country, and talk about the cultural influence of politics. This man has been engaged with his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and it's Congressman Bob McEwen. Bob, stand up, would you? So we began this journey together as we were going through the Beatitudes, and we got to the conclusion of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, and it said, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And as I shared earlier on, I've been in the pulpit for mm, off and on probably 20 years, maybe more, and I've never faced persecution described here in the, in, in the Beatitudes until I stepped into the political world, until I stepped into one of these mountains of cultural influence. That's where you face the persecution, whether it's in business or it's in education or media or arts and entertainment. Any one of these mountains of influence, as you take your Christian walk, step into those mountains of cultural influence, that's where you face the persecution. And Jesus says after the Beatitudes, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And as you look at that, you know, salt mostly is on the periodic table. It's an element. Uh, matter can be neither created nor destroyed um, beyond what God has already done. And as we look at salt, when he says it's good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, the picture I got from from three commentators was this idea that salt is where we get the word salary in the in the in the in the Latin, which is the, the Romans were paid in salt. You've heard the term "you're worth your weight in salt." The Roman soldiers were paid in salt, and so when they're speaking of a currency or a commodity or a salary. It's, it's, it's what people considered a commodity, and it was a, a preservative, and, and salt penetrates, light illuminates, <clears throat> but the idea of, of preservation is more than that. You're a commodity, a currency, a salary, and if you're not engaged in the culture, you're thrown out and trampled underfoot, you're irrelevant. We've gone through each of these, uh, and let's just do a quick synopsis. As we've gone through the, the, the picture of arts and entertainment, what is the currency, the commodity, the salary in arts and entertainment as you enter into this world? For one, it's ticket sales. And we saw as, as um, somebody is making inroads into this, this world where we can create Christian films for Christians that the world doesn't necessarily want to watch or even come to, and we can entertain ourselves. But the reality is to step into the midst of Hollywood and make a profound difference as we saw with that. In politics, the salary, the commodity, the currency in politics is winning elections. And so is you want to be pious and, and, and step away from politics because you say it's dirty. The reality is we only have an influence when we know how to move the constituency, and we have to be educated in these areas. As we look at business, we start to understand that, and as Pastor Mark took us through this understanding of this cultural mountain of business and to see the Protestant work ethic and, and how, how we are supposed to set the example in the business world. We're the first to arrive at work, the last to leave, and they look at us and they say, your work is exemplary. And this is the picture that we have. 
Uh, we went through media, as we saw with David Brody. Here's a man that is is having an enormous impact in Washington. As, as there's Bible studies taking place, you've, you've seen the impact. Here he is sending scriptures to the President of the United States who calls him and says, they're on my desk, I'm reading them. You see the influence we're having as we step into these worlds. You aren't in this church to get fat and lazy. I'm not interested in pew potatoes, right? You're here, to, you know, and, and as a sense, this is, this is a ship, and, and you're all passengers in a sense, but you're pilots, and you, you, you land on this aircraft carrier, you refuel, you get your, your ammunition all stocked, and you patch up all the bullet holes, and then you go back out, and you were making inroads into this, into this world, this culture, this, this community, through the commodity, the currency, the salary of these different mountains of influence. And so we've gone through all of these. Well, tonight, one of the things that I've been noticing as we've been going through a, a myriad of speakers is the, the, the distance between the age groups. You look around, you see a bunch of people with hair my color, which has no color. <laughs> it's all gone. And then we see some of the younger folks. And there is, there's, a, there's a distance, as there is in this aisle, there's a distance with an understanding because all of us grew up with civics. We understand the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution, 27 amendments. We understand how this nation was founded. I remember praying in school when I was a young boy. None of you have ever had that. You have been raised with evolution. You are a postmodern culture. You, you haven't seen scriptures. You've been taught everything that is opposite of what we grew up understanding. And so now we look at all these cultures of influence, and a lot of you are going, well, man, I, I'm not sure I'd, I'd, I'd get involved in that. And you have preconceived notions, and you've been fed a, a worldview that is contrary to the scriptures. And when I had the privilege to talk with Pastor Ken Graves, he's from Maine, and he's a cross between Leonidas and Shakespeare, when I had a chance to talk to him, he got a letter, uh, a postcard that was written to him about somebody who wanted to define for him who Jesus was and, and their, their worldview of who Jesus is, and they did it from a political standpoint. And what Ken did is he took this postcard and systematically through Scripture, he debunked all of the fallacy that the world has depicted Christ to be. The Word of God is true. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And no preacher causes the word of God to come alive. We come alive to God's living word. And this is a gift that Pastor Ken Graves has. And when he takes you through this study, I encourage you, do not check out. Pay attention. Because the contrast of what you're about to hear on the postcard with an understanding of the Jesus in Scripture will illuminate and blow your mind. And no one's better at doing that than Pastor Ken Graves. So I'm going to step aside. Would you welcome with me Leonidas? I mean, Ken Graves. I have a gift um, to offend, and I would just ask before I open my mouth if I do that tonight. Give me a chance. It um, it could be you misunderstood what I said, or it could be that I meant what I said and you heard it right and are still offended. But we won't know if you don't talk to me afterward. If you just if you get up and tear out, and that happens then that opportunity is gone. You may want to set me straight. So let me, let me read you um, two things first, if I may. First, from the Holy Scriptures, from the 16th chapter of Matthew. Beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
It's an interesting question, isn't it? <laughs> Just for the record, he was not having an identity crisis. He wasn't asking anybody to fill in for him who he was. The question wasn't, who am I? That's a stupid question that uh, young men ask often because nobody's helped them to discover the answer to that question. Who am I? Well, Lord wasn't asking, who am I? What he's asking is just how whacked out are the opinions of people. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, verse 14, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, with whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the setting is Caesarea Philippi, it's the northern part of um, the province of Galilee. It's, it's an interesting spot, and because of the, the topography, because of the, the rocky nature of the cliffs there at the, at, the, um, at the site where the pagans built a temple, the Greco, um, Greco-Roman sort of pantheon um, idolatry that, that in, invaded with the Romans, considered the place uh, sacred, and they built a, a shrine. They named the place Caesarea Philippi. It's been named many things. But there was there at the base of a cliff, still there, a, a cave. And the cave is a source of the River Jordan, essentially. It's one of the significant sources. It's a, it's a spring that just percolates. It's the, it's the, the runoff from Mount Hermon's Heights, percolating down through all of the, the rock and, and bubbling out this, this great spring. But you look at it, it's just, it's just a black hole in the rock. The water's coming out of it, and the, the pagans considered it a significant place. They thought it was the, the very gate of hell. It was an entrance to the abyss. Gate of hell, one of those gates of hell. In such a setting, the Lord had this exchange with his disciples about who do men say that I am. Collecting from them the various answers about who men say you are. Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, one of the prophets, or Jeremiah. And you can understand when you think about the ministry of John the Baptist, his his confrontational way of, of just speaking the truth, the plain truth, and calling a nation, calling governments to repentance. And there were those who saw an element of that with the Son of God. They saw his confrontations with the religious leaders, and they liked that. You know, that was their thing that they sort of tuned into. And he tells it like it is. He, He calls people to repent. He's not a man pleaser. Goes against the crowd. Others, of course, thinking of Elijah, they associated the miracles of that particular prophet with the things that the Son of God was doing. 
And they, that was their thing. They tuned into that. They logged on. They get the, the miraculous, the signs and wonders. You can imagine them just raving about them to their friends. You got to come and see this. You've got to see the, the, the things that, you know, the power of God had worked through him. And, and so there were those who saw that aspect of the Lord's ministry. And that was their sort of favorite thing. And so they said, oh, he's like, he's like Elijah. Elijah's back. Or Jeremiah, he was known as the weeping prophet, and there were those who saw the tenderness. There were, there were, in fact, I guarantee there were a lot of ladies that liked that, the, the weeping of the Lord, that he could tell these parables about lost sheep. There's a gentleness, a softness to him that, that people tuned into, and, they, and they, they, it associated in their mind the memory of Jeremiah the prophet. But none of those things are who he is. That's not who he is. And the focus on one aspect of him ignores other aspects of, of who he is. He's so much more than that. But the question, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You know, I was a kid once, and like everybody else, except I was a weird kid. I was probably the weirdest kid. If you had met me, you would have been disturbed. You, you would have been deeply troubled and concerned for that kid. That kid's weird. That kid's heading for trouble. And I was heading for trouble. And it was the poverty, it was the misery, it was the abandoning, the abandoning of, of my, my father abandoned our family, he just left us, left us impoverished, he left us the worst states, in a, and um, my childhood was characterized by worry, always worrying. The only male, after my father left, people said things, I'm sure they meant well, but they said, you know, you're the man of the house now, and then my shoulders weren't big enough for that. And they, they would say, you're the man of the house. And, and, I, and I had all sisters, four of them, and my mother, and I spent my entire childhood worrying for them. Now, what are we going to eat? What are we going to do? And, and constantly afraid, and there's nobody to run to. There wasn't anybody to hide behind. There was no earthly dad. There was no defender of our family, nobody. And, and then the poverty, the misery, the worry. And then, you know, then, you know without a father, you're vulnerable. And uh, the age my youngest son is right now, 10 years old, fifth grade, first male teacher, he took an interest in me, and he did other fatherless boys. And my heart was responding to him like he's a father. He was, he was, he was um, just being involved in my life and stopped by, helped me build a treehouse, invite me on camping trips. He was there on the camping trips that I discovered as he, you know, he revealed his true interest in me was um, was perverted. And that, you know, I came out of that experience weirder and more bitter. And I came out of that experience more distrusting, more on guard. Um, during all of that in childhood, getting picked up by those precious Baptists with their buses, coming after us country folk, us, us poor kids. Trucking us to church, and I, I'm in eternally grateful for them and their fleet of buses. <laughs> but honestly, coming into the presentation in Sunday school as a weird little man-child, a weird little man-child who I believe God makes boys for war, and there's a cosmic conflict between good and evil. They're aware of it innately from their very entrance into this world. And I go in to Sunday school to see the flannel graph. 
and the paper dolls was with which they would tell us the story. And it was the pictures. The paper doll pictures of the artist concepts of the Son of God that just did not move me. It, it was all of the artist concepts. He looked like a bearded lady to me. <laughs> and honestly, the way they portrayed him, he looked... Um, how can I say it, guys? He just—he didn't move me. I wasn't—I was not stirred by the presentation, the visual presentation. And that's the whole thing. This this presentation that we're called to Christians is not so visual. We—it is by faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And I understand the artist's best attempt to try to portray gentleness or, the, or to try to portray what the prophets would say about him, that a bruised reed he wouldn't break, you know? But I wasn't moved. I was not stirred by the presentation. I, I prayed a prayer. I prayed a sinner's prayer, and I accepted the truth that, that um, I was told and at the age of eight to enter the waters of baptism. But honestly, coming through all of this... this um, this crazy childhood, that was just one of the many influences in it. And, and it didn't, and I couldn't um, really look back and call myself a, a Christian, a, a true follower of Christ, somebody whose heart was captured by Jesus Christ, until there was, it was another teacher that the Lord used in my life, in his middle school. I'm not going on camping trips with him, and I didn't get invited on any. I'm going to watch this guy from a distance. But I knew him to be a, a Christian. I knew him to be a believer. And that book he had on the corner of his desk was getting a lot of attention. School administration didn't want it there. God had been kicked out some 10 years earlier from public education. No longer public. Now it's just the government schools. And they didn't want that book there, but that book seemed to have all kinds of influence on who that teacher was and what that teacher knew. That particular teacher's job in middle school was to teach me science. And among his tasks was the duty of teaching me the theory of evolution. He taught the theory like it ought to be taught. The theory contradicts established scientific law. And he provoked me to want to know things. He provoked me to want to know so many things. But it was, it was I, I'm, I'm saying all of this to get to this other thing. It was his presentation to me that provoked me to open up this book for myself at the age of 13 and begin to read. And there to find the Son of God as he presents himself. Not somebody's conception, not some artist's attempt but a story of a warrior, a story of a great lover, a great hero, story of one so great. I, I kept, as I read, I kept, um, I kept having this, these moments where I'd pause and think to myself, at 13, it's nothing like the paper doll. He isn't anything like the paper doll. He's, he's too big for any paper. He's, he's too, he can't be portrayed with a picture, with a portrait. I read of him that there was no form of commonness, that he actually deliberately chose 
a form as a man that wasn't handsome, wasn't pretty, wasn't particularly buff, wasn't head and shoulders above above all the people like King's Hall or any of that. Regular guy facing the crowd. The mission that he accomplished... Anyway, I, my heart was captivated by Jesus Christ. The, the, the Christ that revealed himself by the Holy Spirit from the pages of Scripture captured my heart to such a degree I can't. Words fail me oh, decades later. And, and, and words are my business, but they still fail me to, to communicate to you how completely captured my heart was and how my heart could do nothing other than swear allegiance to such a king to answer his call. Well, that, I continue to grow in my understanding of who he is. He's an inexhaustible subject, this person of Christ, the glory of of Christ. So I'm involved, as you know, with um, Pastor Rob here. We've made some statements around the nation and involved and trying to call pastors to Part of the Great Commission is teaching the Word of God, making disciples. And and part of making disciples is helping people to think biblically, to think biblically, to act biblically, and to recognize the stewardship that we're called to in this this world and in this nation. So anyway, for for whatever reason, my my involvement, my statements um, solicited a postcard that came. I'll read it to you. I'll just read it to you first. The postcard attempted to inform me. I, let me just say first, there's only three kinds of people in the world. You've heard this before, right? There's only three kinds of people in the world. Them it is, and them it ain't, and them it thinks they is, but ain't. <laughs> I had to go to Alabama to learn that. <laughs> they say them it is, them it ain't, and what, them what thinks they is, but ain't. There are those who know Jesus Christ. There are those who don't know Christ. And there are those who think they know him but do not. Such a person wrote me a postcard. It informed me. Jesus was a radical, nonviolent revolutionary who hung around with lepers, hookers, and crooks, wasn't American, never spoke English, was anti-wealth, anti-death penalty, anti-public prayer, even there in parentheses puts Matthew, Matthew 6, 5, but was never anti-gay, never mentioned abortion or birth control, never called the poor lazy, never justified torture, never fought for tax cuts for the wealthiest Nazarenes, never asked a leper for a copay, was a long-haired, brown-skinned, homeless community organizing anti-slut-shaming Middle Eastern Jew. Eloquent (laughs) and wrong on all counts, on all counts. May we address this subject um, as quickly as possible in the time that has been allotted to me. Was he a revolutionary? I suppose in some sense you could say so, but ultimately... Not only is he not a revolutionary, he is actually the rightful king. Revolution. Can you call the king a revolutionary? 
Can you call the rightful king, the creator himself, who has stepped into time, space, and matter? For that is exactly what the scriptures reveal him to be. There are many things you want to ask the author who remained anonymous. The number one thing you want to ask is, how do you know? How is it you're going to tell me who he is? How do you know who he is? I know who he is by the scriptures. Happens to be the means by which he has chosen to reveal himself. Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He happens to be the rightful king. The words of the opening of John's gospel, they stand out to me. John chapter 1, these familiar words. John chapter 1, I would begin in the 11th verse. He came into his own, and his own received him not. I'm sorry, verse 10, actually. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came to his own. His own received him not, but as many as received him. To them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Would you call him a revolutionary? In fact, he's the creator who stepped into creation. He actually... And Matthew chapter 25 speaks of himself as the king. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, his words, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, that he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. Before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them as one from another, as a shepherd divided the sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Then shall the king say to them. He speaks of himself, and he speaks rightly of himself as the king. I'm sure all of you are familiar with what he, uh, what is stated under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about him in Philippians chapter 2. I'll read it to you. Philippians chapter 2, fifth verse. Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. That's the title, by the way. That, that's the title. That is the highest title that could ever be given to any man. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man, and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This particular king, (laughs) called a revolutionary, actually demands our allegiance as well. He is a king that demands our allegiance. Are you familiar with what he says? Matthew chapter 21. Let me read you these words from him. Not somebody's words about him. Matthew chapter 21. 
Verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain household who was planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen who went and then went into a far country. When the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent out other servants, more than the, other, than the first. And they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and let's seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They send him. He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard to other husbandmen, which will render him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected became the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth good, the fruits thereof. These words right here, verse 44. This king who demands our allegiance says, Whosoever shall fall on this stone. The stone that had been rejected, which turns out to be the most important, the most significant stone. Whosoever shall fall upon this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder, pulverized. So we've only got two options, either fall on the rock of our own volition, our own will, fall upon the rock and be broken, broken is good, and they're broken in that sense, we're, we're made whole. Or the king who demands our allegiance says, that rock will fall upon us. And we will be pulverized. How about what he says? Revelation chapter 17. This one that the postcard called the revolutionary. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called chosen and faithful. The Lamb king. Revelation chapter 19. Hear these words. Verse 11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes was a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. <laughs> And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. <laughs> Such a king who demands our allegiance, will in fact return and will judge. Let me just read you on that, the second psalm, prophecy from the Old Testament, Psalm 2, one of my favorites. Seldom read in American churches anymore, Psalm 2. 
It asks a rhetorical question. Why do the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. That is the attempt to overthrow God. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, his Christ. Saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. But he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son this day. Have I begotten thee? Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So with regard to the opening statement that Christ was a revolutionary, I conclude based on his word that he's not a revolutionary. He is the true and rightful king that all of us owe our allegiance to, and he's coming back again. He demands it. The same Jesus Christ that died for whosoever will will return and judge the whosoever will not. About the statement in the postcard that he hung out, I like the word, I hung out with lepers, hookers, and crooks. Can we just establish based on what he said, <laughs> that he wasn't hanging out, he was actually working. I hate that term, hanging out. It, it, like, it, it, it describes someone just loitering. <laughs> what, what, was that, uh, what was that term Rob used? Pupitators? Pewtators? Hanging out. Was he hanging out? Well, what did he say that he was doing? The ninth chapter of Matthew. <laughs> the statement that he made on the subject. Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw that he, says, when they saw it, they said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with, with publicans and sinners? <laughs> why, is he, why does he eat with these, these people? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. That's a simple statement. These people are sick, he said. And I'm the doctor. And I happen to be on call. Was he, was he hanging out? Now he was working. And he was working to heal the sinful and the sick. His words, check it out, Luke chapter 5. Hanging out. Do you guys hang out at work? At your job. Does anybody appreciate you hanging out at work? Now you got a job to do. And our Lord was sent on a mission. Luke chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What was he doing? Hanging out? No, he was working. He was healing. And he was calling people to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance, the Greek word metanoia, it means change your mind. He was busy changing minds. 
With a changed mind comes a change in the course of one's life. I know this is not proper English, but the author of the the um, statement that he was hanging out with crooks. Well, according to the testimony of the scripture, the uh, crooks quit crooking. Just as, as the hookers quit hooking. There was, there was repentance that was taking place. You're familiar, of course, with Luke chapter 19, for it is the story of the biggest crook that he encountered. He was a little dude named Zacchaeus. That little dude who dares to climb a tree with a robe on, is a, that, is a, that is a desperate man. That is a man willing to make a fool of himself in his desire to see the Son of God. You don't climb trees with a robe on. In, in a town that you have made enemies out of every single citizen with your cooking. But Zacchaeus did. I won't read you the whole story. I love the story. I can only imagine him getting hip-checked and, and elbowed as he tried to find a place in the crowd. Poor little dude. And finally gets desperate enough to climb a tree. And when the Son of God, this, this whole massive crowd following him, stops... And looks up. What happens when the one that everybody is looking at stops and looks up? Everybody looks up. And I, I guarantee you that crowd burst out in laughter. The spectacle that the little dude was at that moment, and I'm sure everybody had an expectation that the Son of God, this, this rabbi, this potential Messiah, was going to unload on that crook. Can you imagine that? Wouldn't you? If you were in that town and that member of the IRS that has burned you is up a tree. I mean, it's like a, it's like a, it's like T-ball. He is, he's right there for the public and scathing rebuke that you'd expect him to get. And the son of God then stops and calls his name. Zacchaeus, come down. You got company. I'm staying at your house. You can only imagine that crowd that went from laughing to gasping. Well, the son of God is not worried about people's opinions at all. His, his statement was that wisdom is justified of her children. I'm sure that the same crowd that gasped at that moment horrified that he's, you are you going to stay at his house? Had a change of heart. Well, that same Zacchaeus, as a result of that visit, came knocking on their door to make restitution. No, it, it wasn't hanging out with crooks. <laughs> he was healing crooks. Hanging out with hookers. He was healing hookers. The crooks quit crooking, and the hookers quit hooking. You write that down. That's just worthy of notes. <laughs> How about the statement 
How about this little visit? Can we visit for just a second a woman who was caught in the act of adultery? She's basically made through it. How do you catch one person if adultery's happening and not catch the other? The whole thing reeks of a trap. The religious establishment, in their rebellion against God, they caught themselves a woman. In the act, that's just it's a horrifying thought. They drag her out publicly. They throw her at the feet of the Son of God. And I, though... Uh, very much not female. I identify with her. I identify with this woman. Thrown down in front of the Son of God. They inform him of the law. And the law says she should be stoned. They're pretty sure they have him. They, they know enough about him. His enemies know enough about him to know he doesn't want anybody killed. He doesn't want to stone anybody. But the law demands it. The law says, what do you say? <laughs> the Lord's not wiping off beads of swag, biting his nails. You can only imagine the moment for the Son of God. What does he do? He actually kneels down and just starts writing like they didn't say anything. Writing on the ground. Awkward for all of them, I'm sure. Awkward. They're looking at each other like, what? And, and they have to look over what in the what? You know they did. What is he writing? And he, and he interrupts the writing to say what they didn't expect. You're right. You're absolutely right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let, let's start, though, with the first one who happens to be without sin. And actually, the language is even more specific. It doesn't translate so well into English. He actually implies that he who is without this sin, you can start. And then he goes back to writing. He goes, kneels back down the ground and writes. I don't know what he was writing, and he's kind enough, so gracious is he, that he didn't let it be recorded in Scripture. But I guarantee what he wrote triggered memories. There were people that, looked and suddenly realized they need to be somewhere else and, and, and began with the oldest of them, the eldest of them, dropped the rock and slithered away. What a moment. What a moment. And there's a woman hearing all of this, waiting for the blows to begin, waiting for the rocks. And the first rock she hears hits the, the ground. And then the next rock hits the ground. And there's a whole bunch of rocks hitting the ground. She finds herself alone. <laughs> finds herself all alone, and he, he, he addresses her. And I, every time, I, I can only imagine when the Son of God says woman. Said this up at the retreat, guys. When he says woman, it sounds different than when anybody else says it. I think he like, when he says it, there's a sweetness, there's a, a reverence for the beauty of what God made. When he says woman, it's not like some Joe Dirt mullet wearing white guy and a wife beater on cops. <laughs> who, who, who says woman, the, the way it's said by so many men, it, it's like it. It, it's insulting, degrading. It's, it lacks the appreciation. 
The Son of God said, Woman, where are your accusers? Has nobody condemned you? <laughs> she said, No, no man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, Well, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The acknowledgement of sin. Think about that. The acknowledgement of sin. But the demonstration of mercy. Go and sin no more. Now this was wrong. This was sin. Go and sin no more. Well, I'll, I'll speed through the rest. Uh, <clears throat> the author of this silly postcard said he wasn't American. I, I so appreciated that that uh, that enlightenment. He wasn't an he wasn't an American. <clears throat> wasn't an American, nevertheless, there is no question that he, as an individual, was the primary influence of America. It was his followers who swore allegiance to him, committed to his kingdom, that established this secular republic. wasn't an American. No, he happens to be the Messiah of Israel. But he's the primary influence on this republic. The statement, he was anti-wealth, anti-wealth. And yet all of these parables about investing, all of these parables about stewardship and wise management, I don't even have the time to go through all of them. No, he was against and warned against covetousness and people settling for mere earthly treasure. Anti-wealth, he was not. So much more I could write on that subject. And, and did write on that subject. He encouraged giving. He encouraged generosity and sharing. He taught wise management. He taught those biblical principles. The statement that he was anti-death penalty. No, no, actually, death penalty was his idea, just for the record. In that he said, I came not to destroy the law or the prophets, but that all should be fulfilled. He was all about the death penalty. Matter of fact, he came... To experience the death penalty on behalf of all of us. Anti-death penalty was not. He acknowledged that day with that woman caught in the act of adultery. The death penalty was in fact just. They showed mercy. Mercy means nothing at all without justice to contrast it with. It means nothing. Grace is not even grace without the law. Anti-death penalty? No, no, he was not. As a matter of fact, it was it was he who, in Matthew five seventeen, said that I didn't come to destroy the law or the promise, but that everything should be fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away. Not one single jot or tittle from the law. Not one little least stroke of the pen will pass from the law. He agreed with the law. So in agreeing with the law of God and acknowledging the law of God, it cannot rightly be said that he was ever anti-gay. That he was never anti-gay. It's kind of Gay is kind of included in the sin category. It's been pretty well defined. Homosexuality is sin. He came to save us from our sin. How about the subject? They never mentioned abortion. Never mentioned abortion, the author says. How about the uh, statement from 
Matthew chapter 10. No, my notes fail me, as they often do every time I try to use notes. I end up with these awkward moments, better off depending upon my memory. Never mind. But when he said, thou shalt not kill, you know the commandments. He covered abortion, did he not? How about the statement, he never called the poor lazy? No, he agreed with what the scripture already said about the lazy man, all through the scriptures, all through Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 13, Proverbs 24, 30, and 34. Scriptures continually indict the sluggard. But he does call his disciples to give and to care for the poor. He didn't command the government to take from people to give to other people. He agreed with the commandment, thou shalt not steal. He, the Son of God, actually acknowledged the concept of ownership. That you're not supposed to steal or even covet. Matthew 10, 21. Is that what you said? You just said that, bro? Yeah, yeah. Matthew 10, 21. Brother shall deliver a brother to death. and Father the child, that one. The children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. I suppose it's applicable. Statement that he didn't justify torture, well, that's an interesting one, and we could debate that. But he did certainly warn about eternal torture and eternal torment. There's a whole lot more to this. But ultimately, brothers and sisters, this evening, I would submit to you that there is a world full of people that think they know who he was and actually seeking to redefine him. As some kind of young version of Bernie Sanders. Just, a, <clears throat> just a, another hippie from the Middle East. But that's not who he reveals himself to be. He reveals himself to be something else altogether. Someone else altogether. I think there are many <clears throat> sort of graven images. Mental graven images. And the wisest thing... For anybody to do that wants to know who he is, is consult him on that subject and consult his word, the revelation of who he actually is, the scripture. How can we know anything about him? By his divine revelation. I, coming to the place as a young man of seeing him revealed in scripture, could not get over the, the, the mix of the kindness and the courage. I read of one who wept, a man who wept on behalf of others. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He broke his heart. He, he actually I dug into it later. Not only did he weep, he actually convulsed. He had a crying fit the thought of all that they would suffer. He wept over a city. And then he entered that city and entered his father's house and whipped grown men out of his father's house. He gave them a whipping. He drove them out, drove them and their animals out. He overturned their tables and dumped their money out. This, this, this one who weeps and then whips 
captivated my heart. Continues to. Continues. He doesn't have a problem with stinging you. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. How kind it occurred to me. How incredibly kind. That he would hurt people's feelings. I've often wondered and still wondered to this day. Where was that guy Saul of Tarsus who happened to be a Pharisee of Pharisees? Big big deal, a high achiever academically in Jerusalem. Where was he when the whip was flying in the hands of the Son of God? Where did he begin to get stung, goaded? Because ultimately, when he has his Damascus Road experience, he is being asked by the Son of God. Isn't it hard for you to kick against the pricks? Hard for you to kick against the goads, the whipping? Kicking the whip, is that smart? How's it working for you, Saul? I've often wondered where the whipping began. But he was stung. He was whipped. He reacted against that stinging by becoming the great persecutor. All of that changed when he was there on the road to Damascus being confronted by the reality that the one that he had declared war on was actually who he claimed to be. And his rightful king, his Messiah. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus was the result of a changed mind. And I maintain that that is, ladies and gentlemen, our mission. Can I leave you one more more thought? Just one more. And I'll make it very brief. You remember on the occasion when the Lord Jesus, um, he said to his disciples, I don't want to send these people away hungry. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing for them to eat. Let's feed them. And the disciples, at least one of them anyway, said, shall we go and buy enough food for all of these? It's impossible. And someone else came and said, we have five loaves and two fishes. What is that among so many? You remember what the Lord did, how he blessed and broke, gave to the disciples and they gave to the multitude. What did he do before blessing and breaking? He commanded his disciples to have them all go sit down in the grass in companies. Remember that? He divided the multitude up. He had his disciples divide the multitude up in companies, in groups. What do you create when you divide the multitude into groups? You create corridors. And what are the corridors for? What are those corridors of bread distribution? Oh, well, fishing bread. The Lord Jesus put his disciples in a place that he wanted them to spend the rest of their life. That was right between him, the source of what everybody needed, and they, the hungry multitude. It wasn't about efficiency. <clears throat> what would we do? Form a line? Isn't that our way, culturally? Hey, line up! Fish and bread coming. Everybody line up. Then you can tell them how much they can have, right? What would, we do? what would he do? What? He could do anything. Could he not just order manna and have it float down upon this crowd? He could have, couldn't he? He's, he's in charge of the fish. He demonstrated that with a miraculous catch. He could have just called them. The lake wasn't so far away. He could have ordered up quail. Did that on one occasion. Were his rebellious people. But he didn't do any of that. In fact, I was saying this 
I was talking to a bunch of little kids at church in my role as pastor. I was talking to these little kids about this, and there's one little boy. I could see him. You know how boys are they're looking off? And I go, I, this kid's name is Ben. I go, Ben, you got a, you got a thought. What is it? What are you seeing? He's like, he, I can tell he's looking at a movie screen in his head. And he goes, he could have just said, be full. <laughs> he could have. He, could, he said, light me. He could have went, be full. I'm stuffed. Could have done it. The kid was right. That's not what he did. Because he wanted his disciples to see the place that he's invited them to. That they're not the source. They don't have to come up with anything. All they got to do is go from him to them. And when they're empty, come back to him. It's pretty simple. And I insist, brothers and sisters, the Lord has put us all in the same place. He created the very corridors. Every one of us, with our vocation, every one of us by where we live, every one of us who are connected to other people, the corridors have been created by the Lord himself for us to represent him to them. Isn't that something? And you don't have to come up with anything. All you got to do is go receive. You don't have to generate. You don't have to go bake some bread or catch the fish. All you got to do is walk with your empty basket. Back to the Lord and go, ah, basket's empty. What are you going to do about it? And the Lord go, well, bring it away and fill it back up. It was an amazing thing. That was an all-you-can-eat fish and bread deal. That was a serious feast. And then he sent them back, go get the, go get the leftovers. And there were leftovers. Every guy's got a basket full. And I believe, dear brothers and sisters, God wants to use you and me. Take uh, what, the, what the masses need. They need they don't know what they need, by the way. They don't know what they need. But you know what they need. They know what they want. Let's not go down that road. Let's, let's give them what they need. Let's receive it from the Lord and give it to them. And it is the very word of God. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to be here tonight. Thank you, Father, for the chance to stand in this church. This, this particular building even is significant to me. I thank you, Lord, for being with us here tonight. I thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you reveal yourself in such a way. We don't have to wonder about you. We don't have to invent things. We don't have to um, imagine. All we've got to do is read. You have revealed yourself, and we can actually know you've made yourself knowable. We thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we can know you who, as you are. Please, Lord, help us to grow in that. And help us to be so captivated by you that it's contagious. In that holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Amen. Don't go anywhere. Can't go leave. Anywhere. <laughs> Me telling Ken what to do. <laughs> oh, that's scary. Uh, so typically we do a question and answer. Uh, it's 827, so we got about three minutes for that. Excellent. Yeah. Um, driving with Ken down the mountain, um, I'd never known this, but your dad died in an, in an explosive, explosive accident? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was um, blasting accident. Blasting accident. How old were you when he passed? I was nine. Yeah. So he loses his dad at nine, and the family's left with nothing. So he's got his mom, four sisters? Yeah. And yourself? Yeah. So you want to talk about a broken home, absent father, kind of the millennial mindset. He was already practicing that back before there's any millennials, pretty much. Yeah. And then growing up in the absence of that, and then seeing this this uh, high school teacher, 
put in his Bible, just a simple aspect of, of affecting culture by being in the public school system and putting your Bible on the desk. And, and the intrigue that it put into Ken's heart yeah. and, and to see what that did. I actually was, the very first Bible study I ever attended was by an English teacher in my high school who invited me to come to a Bible study. And I would just say to any of you considering education, be bold. You know, one of the things that is that postcard was written, that's the world defining Jesus so that it's a lot easier. And you want to you wanna navigate the path of least resistance instead of confront the culture with the truth. And there will be conflict, but you speak the truth in love. And you do it in a tender way, as we've been seeing through each of these folks in these cultural mountains of influence. So uh, that was one of the things I learned about Ken. Are there any questions? We don't have the text up or anything, so you can text the question. But does anyone have any questions you want to ask uh, tonight? He'd be so bold as to do it without being able to text it. Yeah, if we had the text, everybody would be questioning you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bunch of wimps. Look at them. They're just pathetic. <laughs> they're frightened of you, Ken. I think that's what it is. I think they're scared. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Do you support waterboarding and stuff like that? Do I support waterboarding or stuff like that? It's a good question. I guess my answer would have to be, depends on how you define stuff like that. But if, in fact, the question is, do I support making somebody feel like they're drowning when they're not? not actually being harmed, making them feel real bad in order to find out what's going to hopefully save some lives, I do, in fact, support that. Make them feel real bad. I don't think the guys ought to be tortured or mutilated, but in the subject of waterboarding, it's creating a panic feeling. It's amazing how effective it is. And nobody's traumatized. Nobody's, nobody's scarred. Nobody's wrecked. Nobody's and died I, from it. Nobody died. I think ultimately, in fact, we have, we have people on our side that actually have to experience it. They live through this whole experience. So, frankly, I, I think that the uh, short answer is, yep. All right, now, you weren't asking my answer, but I'm going to give it to you. Um, one of my mentors, uh, Captain James Stark, he was a survivor of the Hanoi Hilton POW. Six foot four, Donis, A6 pilot. When he ejected, he broke his left arm, had to set his compound fracture in a prison cell in, in Vietnam. And he would run, and I was, you know, I was competing in water polo and swimming and made the nationals and all that, and he would whoop me in running. And as he would run ahead of me on the beach in Coronado, I could only see his back, and in his back was this awful scar. Uh, you could almost put a cup of water in it in the, in the middle of his back. <clears throat> And that's where he was hung on a meat hook in the Hanoi Hilton. And any POW that's come out of Vietnam would not approve waterboarding. But I would say this. These are men that have a calculated opinion. And they've experienced that. I, I would say that when you're trying to protect humanity, and my dad, the toughest thing for my dad to come to Christ was the captain of a naval vessel, an offshore rocket launcher. It was a bobtail cat cruiser where the bridge was here and the entire front of the ship was rocket launchers. And they'd pull that in in the Da Nang Delta as close as they could and they'd launch rockets as the infantry was calling in because their 
position was being overrun. And they would just shell it. And my dad would then come off the ship and have to go inland and look at the hamlets and see the burned bodies of the children and the moms. But he'd also see the Viet Cong dead everywhere. And the soldiers would rejoice because they lived. And that's a tough place to be. Now, I've never been in combat. Neither of you, I don't think. Have you? But when you're calculating that you have a responsibility to protect, and that's the enemy, there are things you do in war where Jesus commended the centurion for his faithfulness to authority. I've never been there. I don't know. I don't make those decisions. We hope that the people are are wise. For us to make that decision, we're not in that place. And, and I'll tell you, it, it's not easy. But for us to make a blanket statement like we understand, we don't. And um, the response of every POW I've ever met isn't for it. But that doesn't mean that it's not effective. I know by the intelligence that we have saved lives as a result of it. So I, I would say it's above my pay grade. That's an Obama answer, but I really would say that. And I wouldn't make a judgment on that until you're in their shoes. That was the hardest thing for my dad to come to Christ because of the things he had done. But when he realized that the Lord commended the centurion for obedience, he was obeying orders. He didn't want to kill women and children, but he certainly wanted to save lives of the soldiers that were calling for fire support. War's awful. So work that one out. Yeah. Don't beat me up. Yeah. Someone who influenced you to become a pastor. No, no, honestly, nobody but the Lord Himself. In fact, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to be. I wanted to be. I wanted to preach. I knew that. I wanted to make the case for who Jesus Christ is. And the young guy, I just wanted to be there. I, I saw that there were preachers who got to preach without having all the responsibility of taking care of people, and I wanted that gig. I just want to blow in and blow up and blow out. And, and uh, the Lord, you know, I, I didn't aspire to it. And, and it's just, it, 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 it was a growing sense of responsibility that there, there are people that are coming to Christ as a result of uh, what I was doing. And, and um, it's kind of like I, I didn't plan to be a father, but now I've begotten these people. You know, and I, in, a, in a sense, and I, I got to assume responsibility. And I kind of, I found myself in that place where I ultimately had to conclude, despite the fact that I didn't want to be. And I know it sounds like a weird way to be called. I was called to ministry, but ultimately the role of pastor was not, I, I wanted somebody else to do that. I'll support him. I'll back him up. I just want to play my music and preach Christ. And and I uh, didn't want to be tied down with a bunch of spiritual kids and all their troubles. But I discovered that the Great Commission making disciples means you've got to stick around. You've got to be involved in people's lives. And, and uh, the Lord altered all my plans by giving me a sense of responsibility for those people there in Central Maine. I've been there in that role of pastor since I was 23. And I've uh, been in ministry since I was 17. And, you know, it, it, it grew on me. And it came a point where I had to go, all right, I, I'm a pastor, I, apparently. Sir, you, you raise your hand. Tom.
I appreciate the question, brother. But I, no, that holding back. It's I, I've had a problem with the lack of holding back. But the but the thing with that whole that that, that uh, Johnson Amendment, 1954 Johnson Amendment, has always been clearly unconstitutional. It's just, it, Congress had nothing to do with it, and I have participated ever since the days I learned of it in Pulpit Freedom Sunday, loading, uh, you know, on that particular Sunday, a, a message with the most politically. Uh, loaded and provocative, and then sending it to the IRS going, sue me, because there are legal organizations that are begging for the IRS to bring that action so they can take it to court, and the IRS won't bite because they know they don't have a leg to stand on. It's a violation of the First Amendment. Absolutely. But not only that, here's the deal. Right now in America, the vast majority of pastors have developed a new etiquette, and they act like separation of church and state is in this holy book somewhere. It's not even in our Constitution. Let alone in this book, we have a duty to speak. And there isn't any place where we're not supposed to speak. And so I, I, uh, I, I think it's an unfortunate thing but the, uh, that so many modern pastors have come to accept this. And I think they're hiding behind it and cowardice. I don't know what they're going to do where they don't have that to hide behind. Well, uh, real quick, Brett. Um, Bob, Congressman McEwen. I was thinking as I was answering this young, man, young man's question, yeah. you were on the Intelligence Committee, weren't you? And you had to deal with that issue, didn't you? Can you come share with us your position? This is your pay grade. Please. Come on, come on, come on. Please. Come on, come on, come on. Come you don't on. have to give up any secrets. All right, I'll do the Phil Donahue. You, 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 answer, you answered the question, and that is that, that Navy SEALs and others are constantly... Uh, subjected to, to as part of their training. Now that cannot be torture. We would not torture our most exalted sailors, so it's not torture. It's exactly what you said. It's intimidation. Uh, in the intelligence committee, what they do, uh, what the Muslims do, is that they march people off the top of buildings. They do it on a regular basis. They 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 blindfold them and then they just march them forward, and you hear them fall in a plot. So we did something similar. That is, that we made a false floor, and we would blindfold these guys, and we'd march them up a wall, and we go, and then we'd have our guys would be jumping, ah, bang, you know, and we'd be shoving them forward, shoving them, and then they would start talking. Now, you and I know as Americans, we weren't going to shove them off and kill them. America would never do that. But we were engaging in activity in order to save lives. It was not torture. It's intelligence. That's why it comes under that classification. There's a whole series of, of things like that that re- recalls uh, sources and methods, by the way. Yeah. And so it was a violation of, 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 of our responsibility to tell how that happened. The first thing that Obama did when he became president, he revealed all of those things, mm-hmm. revealed the sources and methods so that everyone knew that whenever we waterboarded anyone, and, and just for kicks, the number of people that have been waterboarded that are not American in the history of the United States of America is three. Now, hundreds of, of Navy so, uh, sailors have been waterboarded, but only the enemy. And when we did it, there were three doctors there at all times. And this was all revealed now. Mm-hmm. So that now if we capture any of them and they're being waterboarded, they know if they're Americans, they got a doctor right here. The second time, they're never going to let anything happen to me. So by revealing all of these things and these sources, we lost those sources and methods and access. So now, rather than doing these nasty things to them, we do the noble thing, blow them to pieces. <laughs> Much more humane. There you go. We, we liquefy them, vaporize them. All right, uh, Brett, you had a question? Yeah, it was just a follow-up question to 
to uh, the Bobby. Amendment. How many churches have actually been yeah. persecuted? He's asking a question of which the answer he knows. Yeah. Yes, he does. <laughs> How many churches have lost their tax exempt status since the establishment of 1954 of that Johnson Amendment? Zero. Goose egg. Zero. How many of you have been taught in school there's a separation of church and state? Raise your hand. And can you show me one founding father document that declares that? But you've been told that. And you bought it hook, line, and sinker, and it keeps being repeated, and so you buy it. And you don't know how to defend it. It's not true. First 10 years of the congressional record, 90 different authors, not one of them spoke of a separation of church and state. Not one. Not one. These are things they just don't teach you. They don't teach you how to learn. They just give you thoughts to indoctrinate. And so study to show yourself approved. Read history. Amen? Amen. Time for one more question. Let's take it from a student. Yeah, go ahead, Marcus. Aurelius Maximus. Bob, come on up, please. Yeah, yeah it's... Uh, okay, so single-payer health care is the push for uh, a socialist mindset, that, that health care should be available to all. And quite honestly, prior to uh, Obamacare, health care was available to all. You go and receive health care. Anyone in the United States could receive health care. We, we were promised we get to keep our doctors, our premiums would go down, on and on and on. And we've come to find out, by the way, if you just see this graph, anything that is subsidized by the government, anything that is subsidized by the government since 1994 to 2017, the cost of anything subsidized by the government has gone up exponentially. Anything that isn't subsidized by the government, the costs have gone down. Whenever the government touches anything, it becomes more expensive. Bob, come on. This is your wheelhouse. Get up here. Get up here. We're going to close with you tonight. Amen. Amen. No. You, you, Bob, said, you said it. Bob McEwen. <laughs> Bob McEwen. All right. No. <clears throat> ask, ask the question. Why is it that you don't have problems of people complaining about the, the price of their uh, home insurance? When was the last time somebody complained about the price of their home insurance? And if they did, what's the first thing you do? Try my guy. And your car insurance and all the rest. Well, why is there... Problems with health insurance. Whenever there's a problem in the marketplace, it's not satisfied properly. You have to look to the only source that can follow it up, and that's government. So there has to be a reason as to why that's different. The difference was in 1941, December 7th, America was attacked. 1942, all the young males uh, went off to, to war, and politicians come up with these great ideas. And they said, you know, these men are losing their lives and their limbs. Those of us that are at home, we, should, we shouldn't benefit from this. So therefore, what we should do is we should freeze all, everybody's uh, uh, income, their wages, should all be frozen so that we sacrifice at home. Nobody should be getting rich off the war. Well, that sounds cute. And so they, the Congress passed it. And immediately it creates all kinds of problems. Uh, McDonnell Douglas needs engineers that live in Illinois. Why would a person move from Illinois to, to California to go to work, leave their family and all the rest? They can't get any more than they did before. The whole thing starts to fall apart. And so they go into FDR and said, you know, maybe this wasn't the brightest thing to do. And so, but being a liberal means never having to say you're sorry. So you don't say, I made a mistake. So you said, how do we fix it? And so they add a new wrinkle to it that they said this. They said, if you negotiate to have your employer 
pay for your mortgage on your home. No, 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 we won't do that. Pay for, pay for your 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 auto insurance. No, no, that wouldn't be good either. How about how about if we we'll have them negotiate so that they'll pay your health insurance. They'll they'll, they'll buy insurance for you. And you won't have to pay for it. So the couple hundred bucks that you're paying every month, that'll be like you got a raise. And we'll let the employer do it, and he can deduct it, and you'll get it, and you won't be charged as a pay raise. And so everybody began to do that. And over the course of the next 36 months, they went from 5% of the people in America having someone else purchase their health insurance, that by 1945, 85% of all the people in America had their employer purchasing their, not their home insurance, not their car insurance, not their life, buying their health insurance. So that when you lost your job, people said, you know, isn't it terrible? You lose your health insurance, you lose your job. The answer to that is, yeah, that's dumb as opposed. That's really stupid. Suppose they had decided to pay your mortgage. And here we would be, and we lost oh, our job. So, so now, we're, now we lost our house, too. Isn't that terrible? Yeah, that would be visual. really terrible. That'd be stupid. So how, what do you do? you got two options. You either go back and fix it and let everybody in America. What if 300 million people tomorrow went out? and said, I want to buy health insurance. You know what happened? That little gecko, he'd be going around and say, a little more coverage for a little less cost. I'd be, everybody would be calling you up. And there are people in this room, young people, you don't remember this. It used to be that you, you didn't have a choice in long-distance carriers. You had to use, that was all it was. And, and Johnny Carson, every night, he'd make fun of the telephone company. Everybody laughed about how fouled up. And so then they said, let's let anybody provide, provide long-distance coverage. And you couldn't have dinner in America for about five years without somebody calling you and say, I'll give it to you for 35 cents a minute. I'll give it for 25 cents a minute. I'll give it for 15 cents a minute. Until now, you know when you get it now? Free. <laughs> That's what happens when competition takes place. So what we're trying to, we're caught in between the two of having government take it over completely or turning it back. And that's the fight as to which way to go. And, we're in, and they're trying to split the baby and have government do half of it, but not the rest. Mm. And that's where you and I need to be involved because the concluding thought is, remember, who are politicians? And Rob quotes it. Politicians are actors. There are, there are emissaries. There are lawyers. There are representatives. They, uh, politicians are actors performing a script that's written by the audience. You and I tell them what to say and do. If we do this right, we can free it up and have the best health care and the best lowest prices. And you know what a, what a LASIK surgery used to be just 10 years ago? 3300 a night. You know what it is now? $200 to $250 a night. Man. When there's competition, it gets better service with lower prices every time. Every time. Let's, let's put that up here. Uh, don't go anywhere. Okay, so price changes from 1996 to 2016. Anything that has been subsidized by the government, look at textbooks, college tuition, exponentially going through the roof. That's the top. Child care has been subsidized by the government. Health care, food and beverage and housing has been subsidized. And all costs go up when the government gets involved. Look at the things that haven't been subsidized by the government. They've re remained the same or gone down. New cars, household furnishings, clothing, cell phone service, software, toys, TVs. Anything that isn't subsidized by the government either maintains or goes lower, but anything the government touches goes up. Bob, can you talk about third, first, second, third-party purchase? That's what I'm doing on Piper University tomorrow. <laughs> that is, if you're going to buy something for yourself, you care about two things. You care about the price and the quality. No one can make that decision as well as you can. 
You might pay $4 for a cup of coffee at 7 in the morning, for which you wouldn't pay 35 cents at 2.30 in the afternoon. When it's your money buying something for you, you use it sparingly and wisely. No one could do it any better than you. Let's suppose one of those two things is not controlled by you. Let's suppose you're going to buy it, therefore you're going to pay for it, but you're not going to consume it. You have a different feeling about it. You care about the price because you're paying for it. Much more flexible on the quality. And by the time it breaks, they'll be married for three years. They'll forget who gave it to them anyway. Let's go. We all have, we've all bought things for other people we wouldn't have bought for ourselves. We have all received things as gifts we wouldn't buy for ourselves. Let's suppose we're not paying for it. Let's suppose that we're consuming it. Do we care about the quality? Absolutely, because we're going to use it. But do we care about the price? Not so much, because we're not paying for it. So the waitress comes along and says, would you like to have, a, have orange juice? And you say, well, how much is it? She says, it's $3.50 a glass. No, really, I'm, I'm fine. I really don't need it. Oh, no, no, you got the pancakes. It comes with the pancakes. Well, in that case, I'll take two glasses. You know, right away. You care about the quality because you're consuming it. You don't care about the price when you're not paying for it. Any father that ever got roped into an open bar at a wedding understands this program. <laughs> <laughs> Final example. You've all heard me tell this, and so you'll be gracious to pretend like you have. That is that uh, where you work... Everybody that comes in late has to put $5 in the kitty. At the end of the month, the boss invites everybody down, takes the money, says, here's what it is. But he lectures you about being late, and they raffle off the money, and that's it. So this particular month, they say, John, I want you to count how much is in there, buy something with it, and we'll have the raffle today. It's the last day of the month. You count it out, it's $150. You go off and come back from lunch. You don't have time what to do. You think, what do I do? And you look, and across the street there in the window is a six-foot-tall stuffed frog. And you go check the price. It's $149. Perfect. This is just great. So you buy the frog. You bring it over, put it in the corner, and uh, come out. Everybody draws a number, see who wins. The boss lectures to him about being late. And then finally, then Sally wins. Open the door. What does she win? Six-foot-tall frog. Everybody's, oh, laugh. oh, this is so great. Grab, load it into the car. The car drives off. Everybody's cheering in the driveway as she goes home with this big frog sitting in her front porch. What is that? That is called a third-party purchase. A third-party purchase is purchasing something with money that's not yours, so you don't care about the price. If you had $500, it was $500. You would have spent that, too. It doesn't make any difference. It's not your money. To purchase something you're not going to personally consume, therefore, you don't care about the quality. So it's just a big game. Now, here's the significant point. What I'm about to say is not Democrat-Republican, conservative-liberal, Christian-Democrat, socialist-labor. This is just the fact. All government purchases are third-party purchases, all government, spent with money that's not theirs to purchase things they will not personally consume. Therefore, will there be waste in the highway department? You betcha. Will there be waste in the defense? You can count on it. America is the richest, most powerful nation on earth for one reason, because we do less of that than any other nation. So every time some haywire politician stands up, we're the only nation that does You say, thank God. Yeah, because that means that money is left in our every time we take a dollar from an individual to save and use and invest to the maximum benefit of themselves and their family and run it through a third party system called government. We're in the process of making the nation poorer. And you show me what percentage of the GDP of any nation or any city or any state. And the principle applies that the more of that that happens, the poorer the people are. That's why we believe, as Abraham Lincoln said, government should do only those things which a man cannot do better for himself. And that is the decision that each of us make when we choose a city councilman, a state legislator, or a congressman. 
and the damage that, and when you do that, you can make any rich place poor. When I was young, richest spot on the planet in the history of mankind was a place called Detroit, Michigan, the richest city in the world. 1957 was the last Republican ever elected. It is now the poorest city in America with 48,000 single-family dwellings that have been abandoned. The population of the city is now lower than it was in 1900. It's in chaos. The state of California, five years ago, had the fifth largest, 10 years ago, had the fifth largest gross domestic product. The wealth that was created in California was number five in the world. It's gone to number six, it's gone to number seven, it's gone to number eight. It's in, it's in a state of free fall. Why? Because of the decisions of the people that we choose that believe that by taking from you and giving to someone else that they can create wealth, all they do is discourage the producer, reward the non-producer. And in the state of California, one state, one-third of all the people on welfare in America are in the state of California by rewarding people for not doing something. Man. You're not going anywhere. All right. Well, let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll go eat. Hey, one thing, one thing. Yes, sir. I got T-shirts out there. Support oh, yeah. the persecuted Christians and uh, the areas where Islam is killing them. There's over nine hundred thousand in the last ten years Christians worldwide that have been killed, martyred, real martyrs. The T-shirts bear the Arabic symbol that they put on the house of the condemned. And identifies them as a Nazrani, a follower of the Nazarene. I got a few left. T shirts are 15 bucks, hats are 10. And the money goes to oh, support yeah. the money goes to support some of these pastors' uh, wives who whose husbands have been killed. That's right. Um, their widows. It supports right. them. And their children, that's right. And their children. Amen. And he had to bring them out here because uh, flowered hats don't sell in Maine. Yeah. <laughs> And Ken refuses to model them. I don't know why. (laughs) Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for bringing Ken and Bob here. And thank you, Lord, for the attentive minds and hearts that have received from you this day. We give you glory, honor, and praise. And thank you, Lord, for challenging us and stretching us and equipping us that we would honor you and serve you and bless this world that has fallen, that desperately needs to know that there's hope. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.